I think there has to be a lot of atonement in Awesome Powers 4. Like, I- <laughs> Hi and welcome to episode of Cine Nation. My name is Brandon Sparks, and here on Cine Nation we discuss film genres and the tropes and stories within them. And today I am joined by our frequent co-podcaster Hunter Barcroft. Hunter, welcome back to the show. Pleasure to be here as always, Brandon. It's always great to have you. And today we are continuing our series on the parody genre. This month we've been kind of talking about what makes a parody film, and the biggest thing is usually the love for the genre that you were making fun of. I think we kind of felt that with a lot of these films, you have to have passion in some way for the topic. If it's, we talked about Monty Python, and the Holy grail and how that is, that kind of came from Terry Jones's love of King Arthur and the medieval times. And they really wanted to make a true medieval film. And that's why it became this kind of good parody. Or if you look at kind of more modern day stuff, like, only murders in the building that started off as a parody of true crime podcast and, and true crime mysteries that ends up being the thing it's making fun of. And that's kind of the big thing we're talking about with this parody genre, but also with some of these parodies, these kind of like the more recent trend of the epic movies and date movies, how some of these films can go into more broad topics and just trying to make fun of, everything and not just one specific thing in turn that kind of hurts the film today our film we talked about top secret last week which is kind of a spy movie but this one really fits more into the spy parody genre of james bond uh today's film we're talking about austin powers international man of mystery um so hunter you picked this film why did you pick the 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 austin powers mike myers classic i I picked it because this franchise meant a lot to me as a child, as well as a teenager, I guess. Um, you know, I did a little bit of backstory on my connection to this film. My cousin, I used to borrow DVDs from my cousin to watch movies because I didn't really have any DVDs at home. I would go to like Blockbuster stuff, but anything like more than PG, I needed to get from my cousin. And so my cousin, Philip would just give me boxes of DVDs and he was done watching them. And one of the collections I inherited from him was the entire Austin Powers trilogy uh, over time. So yeah. when this, you know, this movie meant a lot to me as a kid, because I mean, I was pretty young when I watched it for the first time. Um, mm-hmm. And it back then it really, it hit me really like, I thought it was hilarious and I thought it was like the funniest thing I've ever seen in my life. Because it was that that's the way it culturally kind of was for teenage boys in the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like like hilarious thing. And so I have a connection to it from then. But also just over time, like this movie is one of those movies that you've seen the franchise and like you don't realize how much, at least for me, you don't realize how ingrained it is into your childhood, you know? Yeah. And like I, yeah. I largely contribute uh you know elizabeth hurley in this movie is like my teenage sexual awakening in a lot of ways <laughs> and so revisiting yeah. that and i honestly that kind of just something i had forgotten over time but revisiting it for this for this franchise i was like oh man yeah i totally remember now this and bedazzled <clears throat> with her and Brendan fraser uh oh yeah man yeah i agree with you it's 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 funny when we started discussing the genre 
we were talking about my Python and the Holy Grail and how there's kind of this connection to like that being kind of the movie that you watch when you're a teenager that gets you into like kind of feels like higher highbrow comedy in a way i don't know if it's say highbrow but like it feels like you're in on this joke that no one gets and and thomas talked about how he would quote the movie all the time and how me and my friends would too but i think back to austin powers and austin powers was that thing right before i got like 15 16 years old it was exactly. like when it was like when you were a kid into like into the 13 13 age realm this was kind of the series you watched and that you quoted a lot with your friends and that was the thing i'm watching it this time i went back and watched one and three and i also i've seen two probably the most weirdly but same i i this was one that i quoted a lot growing up and like you said i kind of found it through dvd i think it was a rental it was your dvd or vhs um I actually, I think I saw the second one first before I saw the first one, weirdly. Um, and then I went back and watched the first one because I think by the time the second one came out, it was reaching a very, kind of taking a big shelf of pop culture, I think, in terms of comedy. I think that's the weird thing is that looking back on it now, this feels like one of the most popular and one of the few like comedy franchises of its era and it's right at a point where because they talked about i read someone talk about with gold member because government comes out i think in 2002 but they're saying how it's coming out post 9 11 and how like so everything kind of just feels different when watching austin powers and basically right after austin powers you get the kind of judd apatow comedy kind of boom within a few years and how this feels like a, a weird transitional point but yeah it's like i came to it when i was a kid and so i've always had a special place in my heart for austin powers and kind of the mike myers big point in his career post wayne's world wayne's world but yeah it's it's one that i have not revisited a lot since then i haven't either yeah so so can you introduce kind of like who the players are in this in this movie yeah, so like Austin Powers, International Man of Mystery, is about the titular character of Austin Powers, who is a spy and 60s sex uh, swinger icon, so to speak, that he basically cryogenically freezes himself in the event that his arch nemesis, Dr. Evil, who is, who is also frozen in space, uh, re- ever returns, ever returns to the world to like wreak havoc. That's kind of the setup of the movie, uh, but is directed by Jay Roach who has gone on to direct, uh, I guess most recently, Bombshell would probably be the most recent, yeah. which is honestly from from this to Bombshell is a fascinating turn. Yeah, not yeah, gonna lie. yeah it's, it's looking at, look, yeah, looking at like, like him and Adam McKay and those like kind of comedians who, what I we could argue is like the movies that like were dominated towards like white male audiences, young white yeah. male audiences, and they become like, Sit, make them satirical directors all of a sudden or like about like social issues and things like that in america it's very interesting to see the darker the darker satire about society yeah the evolution of like go from anchorman to global warming and and, and <laughs> science with don't look up or whatever that okay so it's a, it's a very interesting evolution and jay roach also in that category. <laughs> 100%. 100%. And it's honestly something I yeah. would never have thought of. And I would have never put those two together. But 100%. It's true. It's very true. Um, 
He so he directs. It's uh, written and starring, obviously, Mike Myers, also starring Elizabeth Hurley as his love interest. Uh, Robert Wagner, uh, Seth Green and Mindy Sterling from the Groundlings uh, Theater Group. Uh, premiered in 1997 and would be the first in a uh, trilogy franchise. I mean, it really is like it's it's a such a small in comparison to what it became. It's such a small film. Like it is such a small contained yeah. film to com- compare to where it ends up in, in Goldmember. It's a very different feel. Like It still has the same kind of, you know, quality charm to it, but it's such a different as far as scale goes. This is a very scaled down movie. It definitely feels like a like let's let let's let Mike Myers go make his little comedy. Yeah. It, that's what kind of feels like. Um because and then by the end of it, by the third film, it's just like it's a tentpole. Yeah. It's like it's the it's like it's taking a big portion of the calendar um for New Line, basically. Yeah, New Line hundred percent just took a flyer on this and was like, you know, maybe maybe yeah. Mike Myers will make this into something that we can do something with but you know here's a little bit of money have fun uh low risk yeah obviously high reward but yeah yeah, i mean it worked out for everyone involved i would argue because you get because like like myers at this point has not made a movie in four years to look at because he he's he's wayne's world 92 so i married axe murder in wayne's world 2 in 93 and then nothing else until this film i mean this he was gonna do wayne's world 3 this is the film that that prevented him from starting wayne's world 3 according to the research i did i mean he was basically like hey he had a choice of uh starting development on wayne's world 3 or doing this he chose this and we can get into it a little later but uh i think the divide between him and dana carvey really started to submit itself in, in this movie um yes it's very clearly a turning point for his career I would argue. I mean, Wayne's World was huge, but this is yeah. this takes another level of size for him. Mike, my yeah, Mike Myers. It's like it's he has. I mean, that's the interesting thing about looking at Austin Powers. It's like you're looking at Mike Myers becoming one of the top comedy names in the industry, and then within a few years is out of the industry. It feels like um, by by the end of 2010, before in 2008 with Love Guru. Like he's still making movies occasionally and like kind of appearances, but like it goes Austin Powers one, one, two, and three. In the midst of that, you're having Shrek become big, but then mm. it's like Cat in the Hat, and then Love Guru, and then he's kind of like out. But how did this movie get to production? Like how did this come about? You know, it's honestly really a personal thing from Myers himself. Um, I think you can really you can start with. Mike Myers' father passing away in 1991 and you can I think they were they were either very close it's hard to tell because a big theme of this franchise is the fact that Austin never had a dad so it's it's a little weird seeing how that is one of the main yeah. themes but also knowing that the main reason that this uh got made is cuz also Mike Myers' father passed away in 91 and you know he's he's quoted as a saying that he was driving home one night and he was thinking about the influences his father had on not only his like, you know, upbringing, but also his comedy and the way that he tells jokes and storytelling. And he heard a Burt Bacharach song, which is funny for later on when this movie gets made, uh, the look of love uh, when he was driving home from a hockey practice. And he said, uh, he started to wonder about where that generation of, uh, swingers and sex Panthers had gone, you know, like where, where they ended up. (laughs) 
And so, like, somehow he's on this weird mental, like, existential crisis journey of self-identity. And he said that he started basically to formulate this character in his head uh, that he later, you know, turned into Austin Powers. But he started it as a as a musical act with a couple other musicians in a band called Ming T, who end up performing in the the scene in the breaks. Third one, in the third one. Well, they're yeah. they're in the oh, scene yeah, breaks yeah, of right. all of them. It, they're in. You're right. You're right. They're yeah, in they the are, weird scene are. breaks yeah. where they're dancing and spinning around. And it looks like an old sixties yeah. you know music show, variety show. Um, and it's is interesting because that's where it started. And I think uh, if I remember correctly, he talked to his wife, approached him, and was like, "Hey, this character deserves like a feature film. Like this is a this is a movie character, not like a a performance piece of like music." And he was like, "Maybe you're right." So he spent two weeks ironing out. Uh, you know, a structure of what he wanted this movie to be. And I think he really, he's quoted as a saying that basically his father and him watched so much James Bond growing up that he wanted it to be a parody of the classic James Bond films that he grew up with. And that's really the bones of the story. But then after spending two weeks of kind of structurally putting that together, he approached Jay Roach, who was a friend of his that he met at a party in LA about helping him kind of fill in the blanks and punch it up a little bit. And that's really how this movie came to at least form on the page. I had always heard about the father stuff too, of like the James Bond stuff, but also the kind of the older British comedians like Dudley Moore from Arthur, mm-hmm. Dudley Moore, Peter Cook, um, Peter Sellers and kind of those people. There's a Michael Caine movie franchise as well that they quoted um, specifically. And that's why Michael Caine actually wears the same pair of glasses that he wore in that yes. old franchise that he, or old film series that he was in in gold member he wears them in gold member do you remember what, is it the if chris file it I is remember, I that's think exactly that's, what it that, was yeah yeah if, yeah if chris file yeah was was kind of a little spy shoot not not james bond but it was i think it was like a spy film series he did a few films of uh yeah and yeah and so yeah by that point kane you get that stamp of approval with kane coming in the third one but yeah ming t like i da- daddy wasn't there is a song that like daddy still wasn't sticks there with me. To from, take from me the to third the fair, <laughs> dude. Yeah, I have it. It's Seems still stuck in my care. head. Daddy wasn't there. Such such a good song. I looked it up on Spotify, and Mean T has a <laughs> a two song Spotify page. If anyone's ever interested, it's, it's yeah. Daddy doesn't care and uh, BBC. BBC one. BBC, BBC two. two. Yeah, dude. What a what a banger. Mean T. Mean T's got two songs and they're both bangers. So you know, batting a thousand. So yeah, so, so it develops that way. Yeah, so like they get the script formed, they're trying to get it greenlit, having a hard time finding anyone willing to take a chance on this. Um, but ultimately, mm-hmm. New Line basically calls them in for a meeting and is like, hey, we feel like every comedy that's coming out right now is so like sitcom-y and like serialized and very unoriginal, mm-hmm. but this is so unique that we want to do yeah. it. Uh, who do you want to direct it? Mike Myers is like, I want Jay Roach to direct it. And they're like, you know, no offense, Jay Roach, who's in this room right now, but we don't know who you are. You've never directed anything in your life. Like up until this point, Jay Roach had he had produced uh, a independent film about Hitler and that was it. <laughs> and so they're like, you know, no offense, but we're not going to just give this job to like Mike's buddy. Like if you want this job, you need to tell us like why. And so the the way they talked about the pitch meeting was that he came in and he was like, you know, here's why I, like, here's my vision. He presented um, a reference reel of the Fembot sequence and used a bunch of Monty Python stuff uh, okay. in the reference in the the meeting with them. And they basically were like, this is hilarious. 
uh you know you came in here like pretty boldly and was like i deserve to do this and we're gonna just let you do it so here's 16 and a half million y'all have fun do we know how this with hurley gets into or it's just it's just like she's just a my understanding is that she was she was the first choice and they wrote it for her okay in the dvd commentary they talk about the fact that like they always had her in mind and they're pretty unashamed with their uh infatuation jay and mike are both pretty like open about their uh infatuation with elizabeth hurley <laughs> in the commentary but yeah it's it was always her in mind i don't think they ever had anyone else for um for her character at all i think it was always her i do know jim carrey was supposedly the first choice to play dr evil like i think i think ultimately mike myers wanted to play dr evil but he didn't know if he could do both at the same time and so like i'm glad i think it really worked out that he ended up playing both but jim carrey was the initial uh thought for dr evil but he had to do liar liar and he couldn't do it yeah i think i think i think jim carrey was okay i think i think he i think he uh won out in the end no we'll we'll talk about that i guess in our universe cast because i because i know i know kind of one story he wasn't cast but we can talk about a name that i know felt like a part of the movie was taken from him um we'll talk about that later so we get into production that way they give him the money so favorite scenes, what's a favorite scene that you have from this film? My favorite scene in this film, and I think of every Austin Powers film, is the opening dance number. And it's hard not to, like, it's hard for that not to be the favorite. And it's like, yeah, the level of effort that goes into these. And, like, you feel like so much rides on the energy that that scene builds. And it carries through the whole movie, but it builds this, like, frenetic, fun, carefree, you know, like, he's just a crazy swinger man that... And it carries through the rest of the film. And I feel like in this movie, it really works well to build that world and his craziness. Cause he's like running from all these people. And it's, they reference hard days night in the commentary as the biggest yeah. inspiration uh, for the sequence. And honestly, like going back and watching it again, completely see it like a hundred percent. It is just, it's the opening to hard days night. And it is, yeah. it's just, the, it's him running, but then he'll occasionally stop and like do weird, crazy 60 swinger stuff. And then go back to running. And it's like, it's so chaotic and weird, but it seeing the evolution of that scene through all three Austin Powers movies is fascinating. Uh, but it's also something that it's it's in every single Austin Powers movie, but in this one, it's very, very memorable. And it starts it off with a bang, yeah. and you're like, okay, like we're rocking and rolling. This is a weird movie, but okay. We'll see where it yeah, goes. It's, it's funny you bring up the evolution of it, because like, even though like the, the irony is that like, the opening sequence is like it does take place on a studio lot, like on a back lot, like at, at like wherever. It, yeah, but in but story wise, story wise is in England. But then by the third one, it's only a, a dance number on a Hollywood back on a lot. Steven Spielberg back just, lot. It, yeah, uh, so, yeah. So it's the the irony of the evolution of go from this kind of like small British parody of James Bond to becoming this literally Hollywood Hollywoodized film by the third one. Um, it shows you the changes they're they're happening from one to three of how big that the franchise becomes. Yeah, I agree. With you. I wrote down that one too, because I like the opening a lot because it parodies hard days night, but it, it still makes it like it's, it's still an awesome powers movie. It kind of, it sets up that tone and even that tempo of what the film's going to be uh, or the ser- even the series is going to be. Um, but yeah, it takes a, the, the nice, like the, the paper gag or like in the phone booth and it, it captures 
all those things that like gonna bring in i guess even like going into the the uh um this the the his party like austin's pad it's capturing that swinging 60s london very well in that opening opening sequence just the costumes man the costuming alone in this movie and that's something that Jay Roach mentions in yeah. the commentary is like, we deserved an Oscar for this costume department. Like, this, was, <laughs> this was unbelievable for the, like what we had versus what they gave us is like, unparalleled. Yeah. That, yeah. That's the thing too. And this is like a side thing. Like of like, when we talk about like Oscar nominations for stuff, like films that like put a lot of effort into costume design or production design, but because it's not considered a prestige movie, it goes overlooked in, in terms of effort. Like it's like yeah. the same amount of effort was put into Austin Powers as say like what whatever Shakespeare in Love or whatever coming out. Like it's like it's like there's still effort and like thought into the costume designing of this film. I mean, it's honestly harder because you don't have that much money. Film. You don't have that much money as some prestige film. Like you, yeah. there's money dedicated to a period prestige film time, for yeah. costuming, and like in this, yeah. There's not much. You're just like, okay, here's here's a little bit of money. Uh, stick to it and good luck. And like, yeah, it takes more of a craft in my mind to do more with less. It, you know, I think that that's something that doesn't. You're right. It doesn't get rewarded like it should, just because of bias. Um, it's it's unfortunate, but it's a big part of this movie. One of my scenes I like. It, it is kind of the when Doctor Evil is brought back into the world of 1997 and yeah. Robert Wagner's having to catch him up on like what all's happened. Yeah. And he's what, just like, what oh, virtue con has become. Gonna, yeah. Like Robert, yeah. Wa- Robert Wagner is d- number two, like always just like, like he's, he's the, 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 the guy who like is trying to like broaden the company and like really like expand their horizons in every movie. And Dr. E was like, yeah, no, let's talk about taking over the world. Like it's like in a short amount of time, Wagner has like I think in number and 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 uh and uh Spy of Shagney, it's like he's like helped be an investor in Starbucks, and yeah. and Doctor was like no 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 we gotta we gotta put a laser on the moon, forget the Starbucks yeah. laser on the moon, and he's like <laughs> oh, gosh again like and this is what happens it's like, it's like he's always like pushing the the company and the brand forward, and he was like no 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 forget all of that, erase it. Let's take over the world. I like to think what? in Austin Powers <laughs> Four. In Austin Powers Four, I like to think VirtuCon is a big tech company. Like I really do. Like I, I feel like it's a big tech company ran by someone who absolutely hates or like does not understand big tech. Like that's that's where I think this inevitably heads in my mind. But I yeah, I, agree. I almost see number. Two, I almost see number two. It's like it's he, he's he's like the the invisible man behind Netflix is what I think. That's why I think <laughs> number two is. He's the like, so like, guys, we should go streaming. We should go streaming. They're like, what are you talking about? It's all DVD. No, I'm telling you. This is the future. Streaming. And, and they're like, what is streaming? <laughs> and like, it would be, it, at this point, it would be Rob Lowe because Robert Wagner's getting up there. And, and maybe he could play it. But like, Rob Lowe is definitely that guy who's going to be like, oh, yeah, no, Netflix. We'll call it Netflix. Trust me, it's going to work. <laughs> yeah, I love that intro. It's like where he's coming back. You're introducing all the, like, kind of his henchmen. That like uh, uh, Patty O'Brien, oh, the Lucky like, Charms yeah, guy. Always after me, Lucky Charms. Yeah, and that was completely like, that was always... completely improv. By the way, found that out. Oh, was it? In the gun <laughs> that whole bit, the whole bit about the Lucky Charms is improv. Um, and yeah, and then and then you you have Will Ferrell here, um, 
who in a very in 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 brown face is Mustafa in brown yeah hundred percent it's very problematic 100%. but it is like it's our first introduction yeah. to Will Ferrell in a in a film I believe or at least very early it, career Will Ferrell before he blows up on very SNL very early career he's right at the beginning of SNL it looks like it is it is his first film technically he he, he does a, a uncredited like role in like a film in ninety five that I don't even know where it's at and then it's this movie. And yeah, and and he's in the one scene he's or one or two scenes he's in, and it's the it's the, uh, it's the him being, which becomes a recurring bit for the second one of the like him not dying when he's supposed to be dead. It's the like uh, which is always memorable to me of like him being thrown into the, the hot lot like wherever he's thrown into with the fire, and he's like, "I'm very badly burned," and and hello. Hello. Yeah, it's, and I love the Mike Myers's look of just the the this the look of like waiting for the sound of he's just waiting else after just he's, waiting. All right, and then goes back to. <laughs> they do use a lot of really, really greatly, like really well placed comedic pause in this movie. Yes, yes. there's a lot of that, yeah, and it's, it's it's funny. It works still, I think. Do you think that comes from an actually scripted moment, or do you think that comes from improv of them taking a moment to like think about what they're about to say? Because sometimes I think that. If most of it's yeah, thirty to forty percent of this movie's improv, some of that pause just has to be them waiting on the other person to reply. Like it's it's natural it's natural comedic pause. I don't some of it, it I think isn't scripted, yeah. but there's a lot of that of like I mean it's it's always the other funny ones too of like allow me to introduce or allow myself to introduce myself. Like the pause of like what did I just say? I'm saying it twice. Um <laughs> and that happens a lot. But but yeah, I like the intro of kind of all those characters and the Frau, Frau and Mustafa and Lucky Charms and then and then uh, I, it's supposed to be Odd Job. What's what's the guy's name? And uh, Random Task. Random Task. Yeah. Uh. So that yeah, that's one of mine. Do you have another scene that's one of your favorites? I mean, honestly, I love the scene where he's coming out of cryostasis and he's getting like yeah. you know washed. And it's a it's a very clear reference to James Bond and seeing them side by side. There's a YouTube video that compares um, all the references to Bond films in every single Austin Powers movie. And it's so seeing them next to each other. It's like it is literally almost shot for shot. Exactly what happens in Bond. And like it's that way in a lot of this movie. Uh, But some of it like you just if you add in Mike Myers doing weird like things in the background, it just works so well. Like it's, yeah, it's funny how much some of those small scenes work. Even that scene where you're talking about them sitting in the boardroom talking for the first time. That's another very clear bond reference of them sitting there like Dr. No talk, like you know, Blofeld talking to people. It's, it's fascinating to see it, but it's the level of quality. It makes the scenes, you know, feel and like, in all honesty, and- I was introduced to this film before I was ever watching any of those old James Bond movies. So like Same. the joke was lost on me. It lived yeah. pretty well. And this, speak, this speaks to the yeah. film itself. It lives well enough on its yeah. own to not need those films to exist in your head canon yet. Yeah. But it does interest yeah. you enough to be like, you know, maybe I should go back and watch all those old Sean Connery, James Bond movies. Like maybe there's a, maybe there's something to it. And you know, for me, that was my, that was what no, did it for me. The exact same for me. It's like I, I I talked about this I think at one point whenever or twenty twenty when we did our James Bond uh, episode, and I 
I've said on the show before, James Bond was a big blind spot for me until 2020 when I watched all the stuff. And when watching, I was like, oh, yeah, this is just all Austin Powers. Like, not all, but like, I, I Austin Powers was kind of my, that was the thing I, I watched. And so I caught none of the Bond references. And then watching Bond stuff, I go, oh, yeah, this is, oh, the Las Vegas settings kind of diamonds are forever. Or this is kind of Thunderball. Or this is Spy uh-huh. Who Loved Me. Or this is the, this is, these are the Roger Moore ones. I think the, the, um, the jacuzzi scene is one of the Roger Moore ones. And so oh, it's, and it's, like, it's almost oh, for like just, exactly that same jacuzzi setup. Shot, too. It is. Yeah, it yeah, is. It exactly is. It, is. It. It, it looks the exact same. Um, and so like he does that in all of them where it just feels like, okay, we're taking if gold member. It's, it's Goldfinger or whatever. I love gold. Like it's, he's definitely taking it. But what, what makes it work as we've talked about with the genre with parody genre, it's like, it definitely feels like they're trying to make, a James Bond movie. Like, oh, what if Roger Moore's James Bond or all later Sean Connery's James Bond is thrown into the late nineties? Like what happens? Yeah. Like what, ha- what happens when Austin powers or when James Bond, who always is getting women all of a sudden, like, Oh, we're in a different world now. Like, sw- like swinging London is not a thing. I'm not just having sex with random people over and over again. Free love, baby. It's none of that. It's it's late nineties and he's like, Oh, what do I do? And so it's very much a nice fish out of water thing, but it's very much again, it, it like you said, it's it, it's ingrained or James Bond DNA is ingrained in it, which is what makes it hold up, I think. Hundred percent. And that's what makes some of the scenes it makes some of the scenes feel so so dated, but not for the period that it's in. Like the way they use a lot of the the film optical stuff. Uh, the way that they use when they're driving in a car and they use the projection stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It it looks like an old bond film. It doesn't like they didn't have to do that in this movie. They could have done just them driving a car and it, but it looks so much like that old classic bond film. And it really works. It sets this movie into its own alternate, almost an alternate universe bond. We're like, what if, what if this sex Panther was James Bond and it wasn't James Bond. And like, I, you know, for me, it makes every single scene that has a reference like that so good. It, it makes it feel more believable and more unique instead of it just being like, you know, them riding around in 1997. Well, and that's and that's kind of the funny thing, too. It's like we we talked this a little bit on the phone of like how like Daniel Craig talking about James Bond, the modern sense and how like, yeah, we really had to go dark. Because everyone, like James Bond, had basically become Austin Powers, is what it was. Like, Austin Powers kind of had poked fun at everything James Bond. And then in reality, Pierce Brosnan's Die Another Day kind of becomes the Austin Powers movie with all the over the top nature, they're, all, all the over the tops that they're doing in that film. So, like, they had to completely like, recalibrate because of pop culture. Because uh, like, I think Die Another Day is 03, so Gummer's 02. It's so like, yeah, it basically has become a parody of itself and Austin Powers is a parody of Bond. Yeah. If you don't think a if you don't think a ball smashing scene is coming in Austin Powers 4, then you have something you have something of a surprise <laughs> for yourself. Because that's hundred percent getting parodied in the next Austin Powers movie. There's no way they don't go after yeah. the, the Daniel Craig films. Pretty That was that, that was the funny yeah, if they if they do if they do a four, if they do an Austin Powers four, like is it like is it going to be a try to be a gritty Austin Powers is what it's going to try to be like, try to ca- capitalize I'll, on. I'll on talk about this bond. later, but I think there has to be a lot of atonement in Austin Powers Four. like, I think it almost <laughs> has to be like, 
it almost has to be like uh something of like a, a dead like about him realizing that the world that he lived in is is gone and that he I mean, has changed I mean, he, he he's gotta have to go with the whole thing of like he's been bringing women from the past up to the future and just like let it like, like that's what i've always found fascinating is that he takes heather graham from the 70s or from the 60s into the 90s like out of time and then she isn't there in the third one and he does the exact same thing to beyonce as foxy cleopatra brings from the 70s to the 2000s like there's gotta be some repercussions to bring someone from the timeline up <laughs> two different times where am i you're in the ministry of defense it's 1997 you've been cryogenically frozen for 30 years who are these people the shouting is a temporary side effect of the unfreezing process. Yes, I'm having difficulty controlling the volume of my voice! This is Commander Gilmore, U.S. Strategic Command, and General Bolshevsky, Russian intelligence. Russian intelligence? Are you mad? A lot's happened since you were frozen. The Cold War's over. Well, finally those capitalist pigs will pay for their crimes, eh? Hey, comrades! Hey! Austin. We won. Oh, groovy, smashing. Yay, capitalism. <laughs> My favorite sequence, though, honestly, is the Vegas stuff. I think them in Vegas. Walking through the casinos. Scene. There's that. There's the walking. Uh, uh, yeah, kisses that baby on the head. <laughs> He's like, the, I love the Ram tourist guy. He's like, hey, there you are. Do I know you? No, but there you are. Like, it's just like, he's just like going through, but then like, it's the, again, the kind of talking about the uh, optical effects or whatever, like them like walking through, it's the kind of background of Vegas and everything. And they're driving in. Um, but I love, I love that when he meets number two at the, at the blackjack table, did he like, I'll stay. <laughs> I also like to live dangerously. It was funny as they did. They didn't have, they didn't pay for the whole casino to be shut down. So that casino is functioning in the background, like fully operational casino. Oh, and they had, they said their kind of the camera operators would be sitting at slot machines, just like not doing their job. And they'd have to like, basically like call everyone <laughs> back on a set and be like, Hey, like we have a job to do. Like, we know it's really tempting, but like, don't yeah. play slots when we're trying to film this movie. <laughs> and it was like a real problem. It was a real, they had a lot of location uh -huh. issues we'll get into later, but yeah, that's one of them. It was like these big scenes where you just have like, you think it's background, but like a lot of those people are, are real casino goers. Like those are tourists for the most part. Yeah. It's weird. They're just like, they're like watching the movie in the theater. So, oh, there I oh, am. Yeah. That stuff with, with number two, that which leads into Tom Arnold's cameo, which <clears throat> I just, for some reason have always loved of when they're, when they're both using the, both taking the shit. And it's just like, who does number two work for? Yeah, give him hell, buddy. Like, it's the perfect length of a cameo, too, though. Like, it's it's yeah, not just it like really a blink is. and you'll miss it. It's like you get a little scene, no. you have fun for a day's work, and then you're done. Like, that is the perfect cameo of any. Like, it's the perfect cameo yeah. in a movie. And and like just just a good like just the right amount of time, Arnold. Not to say I don't like time, oh, yeah. Arnold, but like the right amount of time, Arnold. But the, the ending punch, like, oh man, what did you eat? Where it's like, it's like, it's just like every. <laughs> he's just fully, in, but like, he's also playing. I feel like a character you would see in that type of like atmosphere of like this Texan like cowboy hat. Like oh, I'm yeah. coming to Vegas to make some to, to to spend some money. Like all that's relatable and real, and yeah, all that Vegas stuff. I think from that, I think even there's a great 
kind of nice moment uh, after the Vegas stuff when when they're getting drunk and they're all, and him and him and Vanessa Elizabeth Hurley are up in the hotel, um, and and that's when they kind of have their first kind of real romantic moment, like her guards kind of coming down for Austin's charm. But to kind of reveal his characters, like she's starting to make a pass at him. But she's drunk, and Austin's like, "No, I'm not. No, not not right now." She goes, "Why?" She's like, "He's like, you're drunk. Like, I'm not gonna do this now when you're drunk. Like, it, it's like he still has this kind of moral code, like a moral code." But you're like, "You're that. like, what a weird thing for this guy to have that I did not think he would have." Like, you think that this but is yeah, like it, he's about to do this, and then he's like, "Yeah, nah, I'm good." No, yeah, because he's like, "No, like if she, like she's not in the right mindset." For this to happen it does make him more redeemable it makes it his does. actions more yeah. redeemable you're like yeah you are like a sex crazed uh you know swinger but ultimately you do have a you're coming from a sincere and sincerity about it i guess you know it's not just about the sex yes look at you <laughs> you'll smash no i'm not you are no i'm not i'm a sensible one i'm always a designated driver I can't, darling. Why not? Because you're drunk. It's not right. No, I'm not drunk. I'm just beginning to see what my mummy was talking about all those years ago. I can't. <sighs> all right, well, tell me all about my mummy in the 60s. I'm dying to know what she was like. She was very groovy. Your dad loved her very much. There was one other cat in this world that could have loved her and treated her as well as your dad. Well, it was me. But unfortunately, for yours truly, that train has sailed. So yeah, any, any more favorite scenes you have? I mean, I, I liked. I mean, the the ending stuff, the doomsday device. It's very like, what's 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 Connery's? Is it? You only, yeah, you only live twice. Like there's very much a lot of that stuff in the ending mm-hmm. that I think works. Uh, how do you feel about Seth Green in this movie? We haven't talked about Seth Green. Okay, so something that's really funny. So I was I was doing research on Seth Green. Seth Green's relationship with this movie is hilarious. So he wasn't the first choice for the casting. We'll get into that a little later. But he was currently working on a, a Mammoth play at the time of his casting <laughs> in this. And he was like, I'm going to go in and read for it as if I am just in a family drama. And I'm going to play it. I'm going to play it the whole time. Like I'm in a family drama and he does it yeah. through the whole franchise. Yeah. It's like, it plays yeah, perfectly. He he's the only one taking it seriously. Who's like distraught over like his, he's actually like upset with what his father's relationship with him is, but he plays it so straight. And I didn't pick up on that until I rewatched it. And I was like, this dude is, is a man playing a character <laughs> in a completely different film, but like it works so well in contrast with what, Myers is doing with Dr. Evil it, it works really well but he obviously was not the first choice but I think honestly like this is one of the most memorable roles in his career if not the most memorable role in his career other than Buffy I think that this is I mean you could argue that like Family Guy but if you want to talk about like live action Seth Green in the flesh I think this is probably it you know yeah one of my favorite scenes too with him it's it's the father-son therapy session that Carrie Fisher's doing oh that's like, a great that scene. entire scene that entire scene is gold to me of like Carrie Fisher just being like, right. So yeah, when you die, who's going to take over the world? It feels like we're against the world sometimes. And he's like, 
no, I mean like the world. Who's gonna take over the world? And it's just like everyone thinks evil. Like Scott, Scott and Doctor Evil are definitely in this like family drama, uh, like you're saying, uh, in that scene. And but it's about world domination at at its core. Um, and and you do have the like, and that's kind of like Scott has an interesting arc throughout the series because by the third one he's like finally committed to like being his father's son. And then Doctor Evil turns eat or turns good, and that's the whole. He goes, he goes, he goes. I finally become like you, and now you're good all of a sudden. What's going on? Like he's just so yeah, upset. Uh, Even in and, this movie, when so it's like the, towards the end, towards the end of this movie, when Scott's with them in the lair, and he's like, "Let's just shoot him. Let's shoot him, and he'll die, and it'll be done." Because <laughs> he's still at the end of the day, still trying to be close to his father in some way. Yeah, he's like trying to prove himself. But it's interesting talking about father stuff to tie it all back in. It's like it, this idea of like Doctor Evil, who doesn't really have a father in his life. He had an evil father who raised him a certain way. Austin doesn't have a father. Scott, who is trying to become close with his father. And then it all comes back to the whole idea that, that Mike Myers based it around like a tribute to his dad. But there's a very interesting dad stuff. It comes from a place uh, of pain is what I'm gathering. It comes from a place of pain and knowing that the one, one of the few things you had with your father was watching James Bond. And that like, while that's sad, he does make something really strangely cathartic about it, I guess. Yeah. I Um, agree. You know, it's, it's a weird thing to come from, to derive this franchise from, but it's it's you would be remiss not to say that it is kind of the whole yeah. point because like because you gotta look at look at the bond stuff beforehand like bond doesn't really have parental issues at, at its core in any of the bond films before this it has a little bit later with craig i think with skyfall but like there's none of that so that's all mike myers and it's i guess coming from a place like i I don't know if it's it was subconscious or whatever, but it's definitely coming. There's something there with the dad, the dad and son stuff that's a through line throughout this entire series, which is interesting. So, Scott, why don't we start with you? What brings you here with us today? Well, I just really met my dad for the first time five days ago. I was partially frozen his whole life. That is beautiful that you can admit to that. He comes back, and, and now he wants me to take over the family business. But, Scott, who's going to take over the world when I die? Listen to the words he used. Who's going to take over the world when I die? Feels like that to some of us sometimes, doesn't it? So, what do you want to do, Scott? I don't know. I was thinking I like animals. Maybe I'd be a vet. An evil vet? No. Maybe like work in a petting zoo. An evil petting zoo? You always do that! I just think like he hates me. I really think he wants to kill me. Now, Scott, we don't want to kill each other in here. We might say that we do sometimes, but we we really don't. (laughs) Actually, the boy's quite astute. I really am trying to kill him, but so far, unsuccessfully. He's quite wily like his old man. Okay, so so on-set life, Hunter, what happens on the set of this movie besides camera operators gambling their, gambling. their, life, their money away. So, you know, most of the film shot on the Paramount backlot in L.A., uh, but then they go shoot additional footage in Las Vegas. Um, but in the commentary, they discuss a lot of the difficulties they had on location. Um, and one of the, there's a couple specific things, but the first one is probably the, the 27 point turn when he's in the little cart, you know, going oh, back God, and forth yes. in the hallway. Yeah. That whole thing 
takes place in like a water treatment facility for LA County. And they're, they're in this, but he's like, LA County told us that if we hit the walls of the tunnel Uh that we're in, that we were putting the integrity of LA's water supply at risk and that it would be a hundred thousand (laughs) dollars, a hundred grand per hit on the wall. So that scene, if you go back and watch it, dude, they are just racking up penalties, just banging that thing (laughs) on this wall. And like, when they get into it in the commentary, they're like, oh, no, like, that was the most stressful thing. Because he's like, I'm sitting there, like, trying so hard not to hit it, but, like, knowing that I'm going to hit the wall. And he's like, it was so bad. And then he's like, at one point, we just had to get it picked up and, like, put in the middle of the thing. Like, we couldn't get it that way. And he's like, it was just so stressful. And, like, the whole time, they're just over our shoulders, like, just telling us how much money we owe them for all the little dents in the wall and how like how terrible of people we were to do this to la county and it was like that's that stuff that were most most of their 16 million dollar budget went dude yeah like alone that they had to just begged they had to get down on their knees and just been like please don't charge us for this this is insane yeah Yeah. but as other than that i think that was one of the ones that stuck out as just like hilarious but also like problematic but the other one is so in the finale in dr evil's lair um when they're in the giant, you know, wide shot of everyone in the lair itself, they filmed that in a backup power station for LA. And basically they, they, they were told the whole facility was going to be shut down. It was inoperable. And like, they didn't have anything to worry about. Uh-huh. It was never used, but like two days before they're supposed to shoot there, a heat wave comes through LA causes a brownout and they generate that facility back online. And it's pumping. Oh my God. It's pumping excess power to LA County. The problem being, the machinery in there has this like very so high loud. decibel hum to it. And they're yeah. like, there's nothing we could do about it. They wouldn't turn it off, but we were contracted for the space and we couldn't reschedule it. So they filmed through it. He's like, they couldn't hear each other talk. The whole crew had hearing protection on because they couldn't. Wow. It was like damaging the eardrums. Actors couldn't hear each other talk. Jay Roche couldn't give direction. They're basically just having to like write everything down because they could not hear over each other when they're inside the facility, oh he's my like, gosh, every bit of dialogue in that last scene has been added in, in posts. Like none of it. Wow. Was real. And like, honestly, you can't tell, you really can't tell. And it's, I can only imagine how upsetting that would have been to film. Cause you got to think you're probably on like a pretty long shoot, probably nights at that point. You're like, dude, how miserable, like that is just awful. <laughs> Honestly, I think a lot of their on-location stuff was problematic in a sense of just logistical problems that you could have never have in a million years thought would have been, you know, a big deal. And, like, they're talking about how the scene with the hot tub, when they match that, that's like a a little shack off the side of the airport. And, like, (laughs) basically all these planes were landing the whole time overhead, and it was so loud. He was like, "You, it was so hot and so loud from the planes going overhead they're like, we couldn't do anything with audio there either. And like, we, we were just sitting there and takes the middle of a take. You'll just hear this playing like coming into land. And it was like, it was just so distracting. This sounds like an indie film. It, it really, really does. Sounds like an indie it really film. does. And I think, you know, a lot of it is like, it's a 16 and a half million dollar movie. Like it's not a very expensive yeah. movie. I, I think yeah, point, you're yeah. limited. You're limited on what you can do. And I think a lot of that is just taking risks with locations that you can afford. Yeah. It's fascinating. But like the, other than that, it seemed like the day to day of it all seemed pretty positive. They would play music on set, which is normal, but you know, like it seemed like they kept it pretty light on set, knowing anything. It's easy to keep a comedy light on set. Like everyone comes in with a pretty good air about it. 
You know, everyone's having a good yeah. time. I think these problems probably made it a little more stressful at times. Yeah. But for the most part, it seemed like a very positive experience overall. So aftermath-wise, what happened? Aftermath, so test screening scores, abysmal. They are bad. <laughs> really poor test screening scores. New Line is concerned. Um, they have their premiere at the Chinese theater, and it was. they said it was a sleepy affair, and no one even bothered to ask for Seth Green's photograph. That was the exact quote. Wow. And everyone <laughs> thought that like this movie was doomed. Um, uh-huh. There were a lot of concerns with the, with the ratings being non PG 13 and they were trying to keep PG 13, but to keep it, there was a lot of stuff that had to be cut out of this movie. And it's like, you know, most of this movie wow. is sexual humor. And at the time we're at a point where like, there's not a lot of PG 13 movies that don't have like an unrated cut, you know? And this movie yeah. never had an unrated cut. I think Goldmember might've had an unrated cut, but like, no, it no, didn't. No, it no, didn't. No, no, no cause no, this is right no. at that time where DVD started having that unrated, like a little bit, a couple years after it's, this, well, you start uh, to get this unrated it, it, cut it, it, things. Yeah, once you hit like I think once you hit like two thousand two thousand one, when people realize how much money they're gonna make on DVDs, they're like, "How can I double this money?" That. Yeah, oh, that's yeah. when you start seeing it. But the DVD is what really because this movie, you know, it it opens to a fifty three point nine million dollar domestic box office. Like that's what they take in total yeah. when it's all said and done. Yeah. But then they waited to have their overseas debut and about a week before they're supposed to have their UK launch for this movie, which is uh-huh. obviously a very UK centric property. Princess Diana dies yeah. a week before they, they like, she died a week before this movie came out in London. Oh God. And they had to go in and last minute cut. There's a, a Robert Wagner line about the Royal family. And they went in and had to cut uh-huh. that stuff out completely. But still, like, I think it, it just hit at this really, at least in the overseas market hit at a time where like people were just sad and didn't want to go see mm-hmm. something that reminded them of this tragic event. But I mean, it was literally like a week before and it, I mean, they, they, so you bring in 53, nine domestic, and then you only bring in what? 13, eight overseas. Like there's a huge drop off that I just don't, I don't think people really think about sometimes. So, but it's definitely, it correlates very closely. Yeah. But really the DVD, the DVD sales and the boom of DVD is what really carries this movie into making it what it became. And like it attributes the fact that you have a cult following because people get this on DVD and it lives in this yeah. world indefinitely outside of a theater. And it, it was one of the first things I think the DVD really saved this movie and made it into something that it never yeah. really was going to be beforehand. Um, yeah. You know, we'll get into the DVD later on in the fun fact stuff, but. It's it's such a unique DVD release. Yeah. <laughs> and we'll we'll talk about that more later, but it's it really is they can thank the DVD for what this movie became. Yeah. And like it's just weird to see, you know, technology. It's the first instance I have seen of like a movie being saved by DVD. At least that I can remember yeah. in my childhood in my yeah. lifetime. It's the first thing where like DVD is saved. And I'm thinking where DVDs are now in the streaming world, it's like that's kind of fascinating. You know, like but the, the technology really does make or break the industry entirely. Yeah, no, it does. Well, it's it, it's it's funny seeing how deep because like, yeah, I'm looking at now DVD kind of becomes 96 is when it first really kind of gets out there. Um, it goes developed in 95, released in late 90, 1996. This film's coming out in 97. It's probably hitting home video 
when's when's the release date it's probably hitting home video end of 97 is what it looks like because it comes out in may 2nd 1997 so like it is probably that first movie on because it's the snapback case because that's the one yeah. i have the old snapback case um well so you think it, about like you gonna, got dvd players getting put in household like households and that's a that's a christmas gift you give a dvd player as a christmas gift this is the movie you give it yeah. with like kind of early on, yeah, yeah, yeah. and the th- and the thing is, it's like, because DVD again, it's like it's not really. It'll probably take a few years to pick up because I think my because I didn't get my my DVD player until I think oh one oh two I think. Um, whenever my Money Returns comes out on DVD, that's my first Money Returns is my first DVD. Nice. Um, and, <laughs> um, but so that's a few years later. But yeah, it's like this is kind of the home video saves this movie. Because you said the box office was like fifty million, which is it made its budget back in the U.S. It made sixty-seven yeah. million, but we'll we'll talk about it a little bit later. But like the, the what happens with the sequels, it's insane to look at the numbers in comparison. Because this, well, I'll say now, like the sequel for the second one, so this makes sixty-seven million dollars in the U.S. Uh, or, or, or overall, overall, uh, U.S. and international. The second film makes $312 million overall. That's insane. That's a huge. And then I think the third one makes $263 million. Um, the budget for the second one's $33 million, so it doubles the budget. And then the third movie is $63 million for the budget of the third film. So it just doubles every time. Of like, That's So insane. it shows you how this, how this series evolves as becoming this massive hit. All thanks to DVD. <laughs> yeah. At the end of the thanks, day. Thanks to the things that live in <laughs> live inside a binder in a closet now. You yeah. Know? And or, you, you or, cleared or, off a shelf, you know, years ago. You put in a shelf in your entertainment room and you haven't dusted that bad boy off in a long yeah. time, you know? To the right of me is a huge shelf of DVDs right now. And if you get if you go watch Storage Wars like I've been doing this past holiday season, <laughs> uh, you'll find you'll find out that most people either sell DVDs for a dollar or they're like, that's trash. We'll just throw them away. Like, that's what it's become. That's what our physical media has become. Uh, but I still stand by physical media because there's stuff that you'll never get on streaming because of the, our, our, like now. And it's available in, on DVD or Blu-ray. Anyway, so that saves it. How was it critically when it came out? If I understand correctly, it was like, it was all right. It wasn't anything special. Like, it was, it, it had grown. I think it's, it's critical reception has grown over time. I do not think it was well received as much when it first came out. Like, I think most people thought this movie was going to be like terrible and go nowhere and be like kind of a miss. Yeah. It looks like it, it, it's basically saying like it's, it's largely due to Mike Myers. The movie gets by with Mike Myers. And I think it's because this is from uh, Andrew Johnston from time out, uh, time out, New York. It says the film's greatest asset is its uh, uh, gentle tone rejecting the smug cynicism of naked gun style parodies so yeah it is so going off that it it, it is this loving tribute to bond and a specific era of film that i think works um but to to backtrack on the well some of the evolution of the franchise what i find so funny is how this movie feel i would say this feels like this indie movie in which shooting and kind of it's the it's the little engine that could in a way of being this kind of sleeper hit that makes 67 million dollars and then by the end of the franchise, it's a temple, basically. It's 
yeah. every like it, it becomes weirdly a family film now in some ways because it becomes a four quadrant film in a way because it's it's like i look at the product placement in austin powers so you have like taco bell or pepsi and we talked we talked about beforehand like the cameos you give tom cruise who's at this point one of the if not the biggest star in the world and mission impossible is a thing already an established franchise but he's gonna go play a, a parody spy in a cameo and then you have Gwyneth paltrow who's coming a few years off of shakespeare in love oscar oscar winning um you have steven dixie, spielberg dixie Normus. Who, yeah dixie Normus. <laughs> uh you have steven spielberg who is the biggest director honestly at this moment in time like in terms of name recognition it's like it's him and george lucas probably but it's spielberg spielberg is the name and spielberg's in this film and then you have Dane DeVito and you have Britney Spears, who's the biggest pop star in the world at this point in that cameo. And it's, just, it's crazy how you go from you go, you get to, and then Beyonce who's on the rise in, in, yeah. in the world, Beyonce and Britney Spears in the same movie, never in the same, same in the same movie. And like, you look at that now, uh, compared to this. And this is just like, we got Tom Arnold. Like that's, yeah, that's, that's the comparison it. is that and you go from Will Ferrell Tom that no Arnold, one knows. Yeah. Yeah, no one knows about. And then by the third one, it's like, who's the biggest star we can bring in? Like, you go from Tom Arnold to Tom Cruise is what happens. Uh, and it's kind of insane to think about of how, in just a matter of five years, basically, this movie goes from almost nothing, being saved by DVD, to being one of the biggest comedy franchises in the world, and then becomes non-existent in our current state of things. So it's it's interesting to look at of how it evolved. I think one last thing to say about the aftermath of this film is like it is still influencing, you know, British spy movies today. Like Kingsman, for example, I think you get Daniel Craig coming out and being like, you know, this totally messed with the future of Bond and needed we need to be more gritty. But then like Kingsman, like Matthew Vaughn comes in the Kingsman and makes a film that is like kind of borders between being gritty, but also really campy. And like it works. It still works. And it shows you that like you would be. To watch Kingsman and then to be like, Austin Powers had no effect on this. Like, that's a blatant lie. Like it is like the style, <laughs> they're like their style and their, the sense of like posh British, like, um, you know, yeah. gentleman aspect is like yeah. such, even with Michael Caine, you know, Michael Caine really transcends all of these franchises other You're than, right, yeah. other than not, Bond, I guess. But it's like, it really does it takes just enough of the comedic campiness back, but still uses yeah. bits and pieces of that. Like, you know, they all have that like British charming, you know, Austin powers, the, you know, uh, sexual deviant, but like playfully sexually deviant about them. Yeah. It's a happy meeting. It really is. And like, it, you know, we still have Kings of movie coming out now and like the Craig movies might be done, but like this movie still affects it. It honestly has affected that entire genre subgenre as a whole and not just bond like they, really every every spy film after this has kind of had to live in a post awesome powers world well yeah i, th I think i think we look at this like now it's like you had to like you had to go dark it's like awesome powers basically just made fun of the the granddaddy of the spy genre so what do you do well you don't do what they did with pierce brosnan and make die another day you go and <laughs> you make born born identity is what you do you go make the completely opposite thing to take it completely away from that from that genre like oh no, this is a this is a real spy movie mm -hmm. and then craig's bond does the same thing 
and then now in the world like like you had that dark 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 spy movie and then king's like no no, no. let's not forget about the old james bond you can have fun and <laughs> that's what they do and so it becomes this happy medium of the two it's it's an austin powers action film it really is so let's talk about what worked about this movie i think mike myers having the freedom to just riff with some of these other players in this film really works I think the improv really works. There's points where I'm like, okay, like I kind of like I get it. I think the humor, that style of humor might be a little dated at this point, but it still really works. You can tell that they're having fun. Um, you can tell that cast is really enjoying the back and forth and that no one, no one's like having a hard time with it. It seems like everyone is pretty loose and like it really works, especially with just them constantly like you know back and forth with each other with with scotty and yeah. with dr evil particularly like their back and forth mm-hmm. is so playful mm-hmm. and you can tell that it's improv like you can tell that he's just riffing and that scotty yeah that whole thing is improv <laughs> that whole bit is improv but it's such a long bit it's such a long yeah. bit and it, it works really well like i think that i think that the improv being such a big part of this film works well and you know it could have come out the complete opposite but they, they kind of surrounded themselves with people that can yeah. handle that i think but it is uh, you would be you know you wouldn't be doing this film justice if you didn't say that that was a big part of it no yeah i, I agree and you're talking about myers like we haven't even talked about this but, but myers is playing two characters here like he's playing dr evil and and austin powers and you don't think anything of it like it's not jarring <laughs> he's no. playing two people it feels like two completely separate characters yeah they only show them together in once in one shot they only have one shot together yeah. on screen your concentration you're always just kind of in it and you believe it the whole time he's able to complete two two separate characters i think that's this and i think two dr evil's in this movie but in comparison to say three he's not in it that much like three is like by two and three it's like evil is like it's evil and awesome. It should be Austin Powers, and Dr. Evil and Goldmember by three. Mm-hmm. But like, this is like, it's Austin Powers and evil is kind of a, it's still kind of a side character. It feels like compared to the later movies. Um, he's a little agree. bit less, but yeah, I agree about the cast. Uh, I also like the music. The music really works in this movie throughout. Man. Like, we haven't even talked about that. I've been listening to so the whole time I wrote the script for this episode. I had soul bossa Nova on repeat. Yeah. Like that movie, yeah, yeah, yeah. you forget how that we need to hear that song. It takes you back to your 13 watching this movie for the first time. And you're like, man, I love this movie. Yeah. I'm going to quote and this movie all the time. And that's a song from like 67. Yeah. It's a song that he like had from, saw on a I, game yeah. show. And he was like, Quincy Jones, I need you to like kind of mix this up a little bit to work for us. And he's like, OK. Yeah, it's it's amazing. And, and it's used to out. But I, I think even the soundtrack of as as a whole, I mean, the soundtrack of the entire series as a whole is underrated because like, I had the CD for the second one. That CD mm. was great. Like, but it had like Lenny Kravitz was on it. Green Day was on it. Like Madonna was on it. Like it, it was like who's who of a late 90s like artist is on the second yeah. Austin Power soundtrack. And there's still good songs on this one, too. And the third one has has also good songs as well um so it's crazy just to think how it is underrated kind of music music throughout with score wise with the with the boss with this uh with bossa nova and then with the kind of source music with the pop songs and stuff they have Mm -hmm. i think is i think it's great in this film and then the rest of the films i agree i would like to go back and see cd sales like i would love to go back and see cd sales for that that yeah album i would love to see 
how much money they made off of it. Because I wonder if they were like, wow, we made a lot of money off this, just like we did DVDs. We need to double down on the music for the next one and make it something even more people yeah. want to listen to. Because that's kind of what it, it looks like it trended towards, being like yeah, what was like, more I appealing think... for people to buy a, a physical CD. Mm-hmm. Well, it's like I'm looking at the, the second the, – I don't know how much about this one, but the second one, uh, it did a 1.3 in the U.S. Plus. So it went 1.3 million sales in the U.S., they released a second soundtrack because of the success of the first soundtrack. Wow. It won a Grammy. Grammy in 2000. This is the second movie, not this movie. Won, won a Grammy uh, for Madonna's Beautiful Stranger song. It, yeah, it, 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 it ended up being on the top five is where it stopped at on the U.S. Billboard charts. New Line, New Line did not realize what they had in their hands. And they were just they like, no you know clue. what? No we're going mil- to milk this cash cow dry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, they 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 definitely like oh man, we'll just well because again at this point it becomes this pop culture phenomenon, and everyone wants to get on the train, and that's what people do, um, and you wonder, it's funny, beautiful stranger Madonna, what happens four years later? Madonna's doing the soundtrack for Die Another Day, like it's insane of how the Bond franchise just took from this. It's amazing how many how many culturally significant films Mike Myers has been the lead in yeah and that he hasn't done much in the last couple years it's amazing to see like between this and shrek alone yeah like that man has made people millions of dollars and still does and like you gotta you gotta think the resurgence is coming you have to think well that well that was that was thing about love guru that was such thing it's like it, it was that he came in with love guru when comedy had changed at this point and it just bombed. It was just, and, and, and they let him do what he wanted to because, like, you look at like Austin Powers, Shrek, Wayne's World, like, yeah. oh, the dude he has can't a miss. good track record. He can't miss. And then he, like, just whiffs tremendously with Love Guru. And it, like, you go from, again, you know, going from this movie that ends up making millions and millions of dollars, hundreds of million do- millions of dollars with, uh, with two and three. Love Guru comes out in 2008 and it makes 40 million on a $62 million budget. And it's abysmal critically and kind of ends his career for a while. Like he had, so that's when he just goes and, and, and keeps doing Shrek movies at this point. He's making that Shrek yeah. money. He, he's like, I'm good. I'll make Shrek money and yeah. take a backseat for a little while and wait it out. You know, wait out movie jail. Yeah. And so, and now, yeah, I do think there's a little bit, he, he was in Bohemian Rhapsody. Uh, he had the gong show, which I, uh, which did like two seasons. Um, I forgot that but you'll was see. Yeah, you'll you'll uh, I I have faith in Mike Myers. Things can come up. I think it's gonna come. He's back. got this this um, Netflix series with him and Keegan Michael Key. That he's I think David O. Russell. He's yeah, and, and he's, he's in the in David O. Russell yeah. movie. Uh, the 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 wave is coming. The, we will we will get another Austin Powers movie. It will be a couple of years, but it will happen. <laughs> Segway and did anything not work? So what doesn't work about this movie, Hunter? There is some really misogynistic comedy in this movie. And it, it there's a lot of questionable comedy in this movie. Yeah, yeah, it takes a toll. It takes toll on you when you first rewatch it. I think it it's a little jarring at how much it does not work now. Um, at least for me in my in my initial rewatch, I just forgot that some of this yeah. was this yeah. way and this dated. And it's it does make you think when Austin Powers Four inevitably is gifted to the world. What does that film look like? Because <laughs> a lot of this comedy has to change at its like rudimentary level yeah. of like the point of the joke has to change. Like the yeah. the the root of the joke has to be updated and 
has has yeah. to mature a little bit more. And like, is that funny? Does it, do we border on like existential dark comedy at that point? And I yeah. think that that might be a good direction to take it into because I think it's really the only direction you could take it where it doesn't seem like, you know, uh, Zoolander two, where they're like, we're going to make the same movie with the same dated comedy and we're not going to care. And if they do yeah. that, it's not going to work. But if they change it up and they, they mature it a little bit more, it could work really well. Cause it, it is a natural progression of the audience and the expectation that we have given the society that we live in now versus the society we lived in 1997. Yeah. Like pre nine 11 is it's, so yeah, different. comedy comedy i always say like the thing that ages the most in film there's two things comedy and technology are two things i think age the most a lot of times in films and comedy you'll just go back and it's like we talked this like looking back at like comedies in the mid 2000s or even just 10 years ago and you're like oh that's changed like in terms of what we think is funny and what we it was and again you dive, dive in the whole political correctness or whatever like there's stuff that like should not have been jokes and like you see this some sometimes now that pops up a few movies that have like a joke that comes in like oh how did that get through like right now it doesn't it doesn't land and i think there's stuff like i know like three has like a bunch of like some like racist asian jokes in it and 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 gold member i mean you can get into the the will ferrell brown face in this movie brown face as well yeah. like I, I know you kind of have like i don't know if it's this one or if it's later, but like, you also have like, and it's also just comedy at this point, like the homophobic stuff they'll talk, they'll go into just like, uh, of like gay jokes or whatever. Like a lot of that will pop up in, in movies of this era. And that just like, hasn't, it, it hasn't aged well at all. So, uh, alternate universe cast. So who, who all was up for this movie or was talked about? Uh, so obviously Jim Carrey, we talked about earlier, was up for Dr. Evil had to pass. Um, the Vanessa Kensington role was always meant for Elizabeth Hurley. In fact, when Elizabeth Hurley got the call from her agent, she was with Hugh Grant at the time. And she said she answered it, uh, mentioned to Hugh Grant, who was sitting next to her, what it was. And he was like, you have to do this movie. Mike Myers is the funniest <laughs> man alive. You have to do this movie. And like, honestly, I think Hugh Grant was so jazzed about this that like, she probably just took it, you know, not really yeah. even thinking twice. Um, I think Robert Wagner and Minnie Sterling, uh, second they read the script, they were like, this has to happen. And I, you know, I think yeah. that they knew Mindy Sterling from Groundlings and knew that she could handle the improv stuff pretty well. And I think Robert Wagner was always like a very highly respected, at least from yeah. Myers, like looked up to Robert Wagner and was like, if he actually accepts this, then like this will be a dream come true. But, you know, it, 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 even though Seth Green wasn't the initial the initial ask to play um, Scotty, I do think, I think uh, the initial person that was supposed to be was Colin Quinn. And I just don't, Colin Quinn, I don't think would fit it age wise. Like there's, it's a look and an age thing that Seth Green brings to that role that really works. And yeah. there's a youth, there's a aspect of youth that I don't think Colin Quinn would have really had on that Col role. Colin he always looked old. Like that's yeah. the thing. He's always looked old. Yeah, like, looks like a dad. I look, I'm looking at, I'm looking at his age now. Like he was 28 at this point, and I was like, I watched him on SNL. He did not look 28 to me. No offense, Colin Quinn. I think you're great, but like, I, he did not look. He, he looked. He always looked older. And I think Seth Green looks like the punk rock son who has problems with his dad. 
hundred percent. Like I think the perfect the perfect casting is someone who is like um, Jamie Kennedy from Scream, and they nailed that with yeah. Seth Green. Like that is exactly who they needed in that role, not the guy who just did Weekend Update. Yeah, like Seth Green is like coming out can't hardly wait at this point, and he's playing like high school characters. Colin Quinn just it, it doesn't feel like a high school character. Like he needs to feel like a teenager, and I think Seth Green nails that here. Um, yeah, I I did read that. I think I think Rhea Perlman was up for Frau, and she turned it down, or she had turned it down because of scheduling conflicts. But the one I want to bring up, not not really offered, but in terms of where Myers gets his impersonation from for Doctor Evil, and that was from Dana Carvey. Mm-hmm. This you're talking about how when, when like of where these two diverge post they part Rain's ways. World. It's this movie, yeah. And, and it's because Carvey felt Carvey always did an impression of Lauren Michaels, the SNL producer. And Carvey's always said like he was the first one to do like a Lauren Michaels impersonation and the out of the SNL like group. And the big thing that why he knows that Myers kind of stole it was that Carvey would always do the pinky thing. Like he would do Carvey would do that when he's making fun of Lauren Michaels, he'd do the pinky up to his lip or whatever. And that's what Dr. Evil does. And so it's kind of a blatant ripoff of Carvey's mm-hmm. impersonation. So Carvey always felt hurt for a while. I think that they've meant they've mended uh, they that their friendship has been mended since then. But like Carvey was upset because like he would be the number two guy yeah. on this movie if 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 they would have cast him. Yeah, because his career would have taken a different trajectory by far. Yeah, and say he doesn't master disguise. Yeah. Uh, and so like that's kind of one thing and i and i've always loved carvey um and i always think he could he could have a better career in terms of film but yeah it's it would have been a different world for him um but and i think that hurt their i mean that definitely <clears throat> hurt their friendship and also poke coming off of wayne's world 2 which wasn't uh as good of experience i think as wayne's world 1 um yeah really it just it it, it breaks them up and they and i think carvey says he's like yeah i had a lot of conversations with my therapist about that about that that character being kind of stolen from him all right so film facts what else you have i've got a lot of film facts so buckle up okay so famously austin powers chest hair shaped like a penis very dense chest hair (laughs) all over austin powers uh that hair apparently when they were in the hot tub scene the glue started to melt and so globs of hair are just floating in that pool and he was like he was like, it was so, he talks about the commentary. Myers is like, there's so much hair, just like globs of hair floating in the pool. <laughs> but then the glue itself started to like loosen up and get into the water and it turned the water green. And he was like, he was like the actress who plays a lot of vagina is giving it her all because like all around her is just, just handfuls of hair just floating in this tub. And he's like, and the fact that that's all going down while we're trying to be sexy and like have this like intimate, uh, you know, fun yeah. vibe going on is like isn't it it's a testament to like her acting in this scene because it was disgusting and it smelled terribly because yeah. the hotter it got the worse it smelled and then like the same thing in the final scene when vanessa and him are going through their wedding gifts and they're doing that sequence with you know yeah putting things in, in front of her breasts there's she there's a there's a shot of her laying on the bed like combing through his chest hair with her fingers he was like she I told her when she started doing it that it was like going to come off in her hands and she needed to be careful. And if you watch that scene again, you can see the glue where she's pulled some of it away. 
And he was like, he's like, at the end of those takes, her hands were just covered in like a mat of hair and glue. And she was like gagging from how disgusting it was. And he was like, I was just apologizing and like, there's nothing I could do about it. But like, I tried to tell her it was a bad idea, but she just went for it. He was like, and ultimately like the shot is in the film, but like, it was disgusting. And I think it probably scarred her for life. I bet. <laughs> no man i was like and it's such a big part of his character because he's like naked a lot of the movie he's naked so you see that part of his character it's almost a part of his costume and yeah, it's like it man yeah. what what a logistical nightmare to have to deal with though like yeah uh you don't think about it but it is it's a it's a problem but especially then, that dancing scene when he's going around and everything like yeah oh yeah and like he's hot and sweaty yeah. and you know it's just right yeah. for like peeling off of him yeah um the most interesting fun fact that I found is the actor that played random task. His name is Joe son uh-huh. is now serving a lifetime prison sentence for the torture of a 19 year old woman in 1990. He was uncaptured Holy. until 2008 when a DNA match linked him to the crime. But according to the victim, she, the victim unknowingly had a copy of international man of mystery in her home until the attacker's identity was revealed in 2017. He was sentenced to an additional 27 years for murdering his cellmate in prison. Wow. I don't know how this got buried. Oh my God. In the fun facts, but it is like, it's worthy of a podcast of its own. Like it is fascinating. <laughs> it is fascinating, but oh, yeah, man. he's yeah, still yeah. in prison. The dude is like, you know, bad, bad man. That's crazy. It's fascinating. That's crazy. It, never, I never, never knew that. Known. Yeah. I found that and it was buried in the fun facts. IMDB of this movie. Just wow. buried in there deep, buried in there deep. But okay, back to other fun facts besides this dude yeah, yeah, yeah. having a double lifetime sentence in prison. Uh, Liz Hurley in the final sequence and a lot of the sequences where she's topless uh, due to the fact that she was like a supermodel uh, in Britain. There was thousands of dollars on the line if photos of her topless leaked. And so anytime she was oh, topless, man. they have to have red. There was red gaff tape so that they could clearly see it on screen. If it if it appeared like if it made it around the edge, they would see it and be able to edit around it. But you can see it in the final sequence. You can see the red gaff tape for a split second. You can see that there's clearly red gaff tape. Uh, but it was something that she was very, very paranoid about. She was like, I've made yeah. it so far without any of these photos ever getting out. Like, now is not the time. And and the thing is, UK, people think U, U.S. press is bad, like tabloids and stuff. U.K. press is terrible. Like, oh, yeah. going, I mean, going in with Hugh Grant, uh, like, because all his stuff that happened with the, with the UK press back in the day. I mean, she's, like, she was with him at that time. They were together, I believe. Yeah. When that happened. Bit, yeah, yeah. Cause he, he, he was, he was being like hounded for years. Like they had people, he's still talking about how like, he would have, they had people who would like bug his home, like to hear him to, like to get some of him talking. And he's an actor. Murdoch scandal right there. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. It would do it all the time. And I, I, I could, I, it's, you know, it makes you see things in a different way. Um, yeah. Particularly with her character, there's a risk involved with her. Um, with not only ending, with the reception yeah. of the film, it's like, you know, it's, there's a lot of like day to day life risk for her in this mm-hmm. role. Um, uh, but she ends up crushing it. I thought she did a great job. I think um, she's great. Yeah. The final fun fact I have is a bit of a story that I told you a little bit, a bit last night. So I was having a really hard time finding any content on writing this other than the 20 year link, the other link to the, the THR article of the 20 year uh, remembrance of this film. Yeah. How important. Yeah. So I'm like, you know what? I have a binder of DVDs in my closet here, buried somewhere. I bet my cousin's <laughs> DVD is still in there. 
I'm going to see if there's anything like buried in that DVD. So I go digging through my stuff. I find the binder of DVDs. I find the mm-hmm. DVD. I put it in the Blu-ray player. I'm like, all right, let's see what's on here. This DVD is hilarious. So you get into, there's an extra stuff section and you can get like, there's an audio commentary, which is really good material. Um, if you love this movie, you should definitely check this out. I think it was great and really insightful because it's just Mike Myers and Jay Roach just, just talking the whole time. But Inside the extra stuff section, like the bonus feature section of this DVD, uh, there's a whole there's a section called British Spy. It's a British spy film featurette. But if you click it, it doesn't lead anywhere. It doesn't exist on the disc. It literally takes you it takes you back to the main menu and you're like, <laughs> what? Like, is that like a joke that they're like, it doesn't matter. Like, you'll get it when you watch the movie. But then at the very bottom of the extra stuff section, there's there's a title Swedish made penis enlargement pump. If you click it, it takes you through this choose your own adventure style DVD menu where you have to keep answering questions from Austin, asking you if you're really horny or if you're Randy. And like if you keep saying (laughs) yes and yes and yes to all of the things ultimately leads to this like psychedelic splash page, like like an Mm -hmm. optional, like a secondary main menu. But it's just this like hypnotic, like swirling in and out fades of like psychedelic flowers and Austin Powers dancing. And it's the most like weirdly hypnotic, like sexual thing that's just buried in this DVD. And like, it doesn't mention it at all. And eventually it just resets and does it again. And like, you could leave it going for hours and just keep watching it. And the fact that that's buried in some DVD, like I'm glad I went and found this because it added like another layer of like appreciation for what this DVD did for the movie. And also for, you know, the, society as a whole at this point but it's like you owe it to yourself to go back through some of these old dvds and just see what's buried in there because you I think you'd be surprised on what yeah some of these guys put in this the, the physical copies of these movies and that's something that we'll never have again you know we'll have it in like blu-rays and like criterion stuff but you'll never have that weird choose your own adventure mini game yeah. inside of a dvd ever again like that's just a bygone era um yes yeah, so but yeah, someone posted that like someone posted that recently. Like, I saw a day or two ago of like there's a mini game on speed, the speed DVD, the Keanu Reeves movie, of like of Weird. like you're a sniper, you're a sniper like as Dennis Hopper, and like you're looking around when people are like it's like a like a gun like a a, a sniper scope that you're looking through. And certain scenes, it's weird. I didn't look at, but it was like a video that I saw on TikTok, and I was like, that's odd. Um, that's weird. Oh. One one other fact I want to bring up that I saw this time that I I I still I looked into it and I don't know anything about it, but Demi Moore as a producer on this movie. Yeah, very strange that she never appears in any capacity in any of yeah, these films. Yeah, I read because I was like, why is she a she's like a not EP a producer? And it's because her producing partner and her Susan Todd, some reason produced this movie. Uh, Susan Todd produced it, but I think because they own, they're in the same company, Moore. Moore's name was attached to it because of that. Cause she had done like, this is released now and then and a few other things, but because it was their production company, she didn't do anything with it. Uh, what I can tell online, but her name's something on this one, I think might be on all three of them. Weird. She made out like a bandit so, to have probably done yeah, no she work made at money. all. Like good for you. Yeah. Demi Moore. I don't know. Demi, if you're listening and you did work, come on the show. We'll talk about it. I don't know. I don't know what we'll talk about. GI Jane. Gia Jane, yeah, we'll talk. My, from my research online, it sounds like she wasn't that involved, but she gets producer credit on this. All right, story questions. Well, my first story questions is 
why do Austin and Vanessa feel so comfortable to walk around nude in front of Basil Exposition? I thought the same thing. That was one of my <laughs> questions. I was like, they're so comfortable with Basil. Like, they're, they're yeah, just like, like it's, it's a just, video. It's, it's a video fine. chat, and they're and, they're, boss. and everything is, uh, yeah, like out in the there. There is def HR is involved in this. I think it's like, funny in hindsight now in a post COVID world. Cause it's like so many people work from home and have to call in on zoom calls for everything. And you're like, how comfortable yeah. do you get with the zoom calls? And like, there's, there's a <laughs> yeah. meta joke there that like, they could have never seen that coming from a mile away, but like it is hilarious more in hindsight because you're like, yeah, they don't know I'm wearing sweatpants or like, they don't know I'm just wearing yeah. my boxers. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that, that fascinated me when I watched it and it's just yeah. like unashamed too, like completely unashamed. Yeah. Like it's not even, they're fully liberated. Because like, you're like, oh well, they're they're being covered up by the things. No, like they're sitting in front of the on the couch in front of the camera, just fully, fully nude, fully yeah. That was my. I was just like, what is going on here? Um, that was my that was my one big question. Um, because we know what happens to 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 Vanessa and Austin. That I have she, a question about actually, that. She's a fembot. Okay, so my question is, if she's not revealed to be a yeah. fembot in the in the sequel, do they stay together? Like, are are they a lifetime pairing? And I think, based on his reaction oh, to her dies. being a fembot, yeah, I think she's either dead or he just doesn't care. Like, I think that, like, eventually he gets bored. Like, that's kind of what I took away from it, because the second that she's revealed to be a fembot, he's like, oh, that means I'm single, baby, yeah! And he, like, just doesn't care anymore. And you're like, how much did he really care about Vanessa? And he's just yeah, like... I know. It makes you sit there and think about it for like, then it just keeps going and yeah. you don't have time to recover. I think they, I think they would have stayed together, but I do think she would have eventually been killed. I honestly do think that. But my question is, so is she a fembot the entire time in this movie? I think when, do you remember the scene where she comes in and she's wearing the leather suit that her mother was wearing in the very beginning? It's like, she yeah. has a complete wardrobe change. I think at some point she dies and they replace her with the fembot at that point. Like, I think there's, I would love to see a deleted scene if that was real, like if that was ever scripted, like maybe this is planned. I just don't think that they ever planned to have a sequel to this movie really. And they were like, Oh, well, we have to write her out somehow. So <laughs> but like, I do think, I do think that she was probably real most of the movie and then gets turned into a fembot yeah. in a very tragic, that's something else that Austin can deal with emotionally uh, in Austin powers Four is like, I never really thought about the fact that my wife was turned into a robot and died. And I never gave it a moment's notice. I just carried on through life. This is Vesper. Yeah, it really is. This is Vesper. And it's like, the more you see the correlation between this and the Craig movies, you're like, they had to have known. <laughs> All right. Well, let's move on to awards then. So awards, um, Beatrice straight award, actor, actress, limited scenes that kills it. Who do you think? I mean, I think Tom Arnold does crush it in the bathroom scene, but <laughs> so does, so does Carrie Fisher. She's not asked to do much. I know there's a like, lot of good people in this movie. To she's do not that. asked yeah. to do much, but she, and I almost feel like she's in such a small role that it is like, she does a really good job with what she's given to do. Um, but mm. you could, I think it's, it's for me, it's a tie between her and probably Tom Arnold. Okay. I'm gonna throw in one more name. Cause we haven't talked about him. Burt Bacharach. Cause he, he oh, he's man. in this movie. <laughs> What a weird sequence. You're shooting that on the on the Las Vegas strip and you're like, all right, Bert, get on this giant double decker bus yes. and just play, baby. Play. Like I had to bring it up because we haven't talked about it, but it's like it's like an essential part of this franchise is Bert Bacharach. And again, going with the yeah. whole what 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 inspired him in a way 
him listening to the song. Cause, and I love the like, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Burt Bacharach. It's like, it's this, it's this meta look. The thing about this, I noticed in this parody genre, parody film, it's like it, all of them are aware they're in a movie a lot. Like we, we talked about top secret, talked about Holy Grail. This even has it too, right? You're aware they're, you're, they're in a movie. The characters are. And that's mm-hmm. how, like, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Burt Bacharach. And it's I mean, like, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Quincy Jones and the gold member. Yeah, and the third one. And you're like, well, and, and the, they do this every time. And the time. second one, it's like, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Burt Bacharach and Mr. Elvis Costello. And that's that's the second one. But no, I think, so I think Fisher or Tom Arnold, I think for me, if we're talking about quotable and memorable, I think of Tom Arnold. If I think of, like, just a great scene of, like, just, like, because... Carrie Fisher doesn't have a lot doesn't have a lot to do in terms of she's a straight man basically in that scene. Yeah, I'd venture for Tom Arnold for me. That's that's my pick. He's more of a of an impact. He's more you you remember it more. I think like Carrie Fisher, you almost forget is exists in this movie until you she's see in her the, again. Yeah, but she, yeah, she, Tom Arnold, you know that Tom Arnold scene's coming and you know it's great. Hey partner, come on, you got to relax. Don't force it. Get a blow at your O ring. Drop a lung. <laughs> number two work for that's right buddy you show that turn who's boss <laughs> hey hey just grab a hold of something bite your lip and give it hell come on we're gonna get through this all right the annie potts x-factor award actor actress sporting actor actress that is the most memorable who do you have who are we going with here it's hard not to give it to elizabeth early it really is like she does a really good job of counterbalancing against myers the whole time I agree. Plays it really straight, yeah. like it really grounds the whole movie to a degree. And like, yeah, she goes on such a big arc of like not trusting him to falling in love with him to like ultimately becoming yeah. a fembot Loki. Uh, yeah, I think I think she's arguably asked to do the most. Um, she has a lot of heavy I, lifting. She has a lot she of heavy lifting. She, car- she has to she has to carry what Austin can't and what Dr. Evil like yeah. she has to carry what Myers like can't because he's trying to play this like very flamboyant hero or you know villain but she has to kind of be the middle ground the whole time and i honestly i think it's her like i don't really think there's anyone else that deserves it to be honest i agree yeah i agree with you on the arc part because i think she has the 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 biggest arc of like being this straight-laced like government woman to again unknown about fembot falling in love with this guy out of time and that that's a good yeah. story. That's a very good story. Um, names I'll throw out just to throw. I we haven't talked about Michael York. I think is great as Basil Exposition. I think oh, yeah. his comedic timing is great um, in this movie. Uh, Robert Wagner I think is good in this movie. But Liz Hurley, I I think I think it's a good scene too. It's like her and her mom Mimi Rogers when they're talking about Austin, and it's this kind of like sweet, uh, intimate scene between mother daughter about this possible sex symbol that she that her mom might have slept with and she's not sure about it is the thing. So, oh, I was married. And but like even and even Austin like later, like even he has like thoughts on marriage. Like, oh, if she wouldn't have been married, like it would have been I loved her or whatever. And now and now it's there's like, there's a movie there. Like there's a movie but in early 60s him and the original agent yeah. Kensington. Oh, there's yeah. a movie. There's a movie in that like the the love that never was, you know? the yeah. there's that whole backstory is a movie in and of itself 
that you could make today. Oh, hello, Vanessa. And how's Austin? He's asleep. You didn't? No. I made him sleep on the sofa. Vanessa, I'm proud of you. Why? Because you've managed to resist Austin Powers' charms. Oh, God knows he tried, Mummy. I actually had to end up being rather firm with him. What about his teeth? It's really bizarre. Darling, you have to understand. In Britain, in the 60s, you could be a sex symbol and still have bad teeth. All right, the Gene Hackman MVP award, person who carries the movie, director, actor, etc. Easy choice here. Uh, yeah, easy choice. Uh... Jay Roach. <laughs> <laughs> no, are you kidding me? No. Uh... Are you kidding me right now? <laughs> no, it's, no, Mike it's Mike Myers. Myers. It's Mike Myers. It's Mike Myers <laughs> and it's not even close. Like, hey man, Jay Roach, like, appreciate what you did. You you really like went out there and you made some serious money. You established yourself as a director. Like I'm joking, yeah. But ultimately, no. ultimately, like you would be nothing without Mike Myers. Yeah, Mike Myers as a writer and the actor playing two characters. He carries the film from start to finish. Like to the I mean, it's it's insane. Carries the whole franchise. Like if if any franchise was ever one person this is kind of up there as one of those movies where it's just a single person who's pushing three movies forward. When you see this Jetta rocket, don't come a-knockin', baby. Yeah! I'm gonna need you to sign these release forms. Release forms? Well, yes, you're not officially working for the Ministry of Defense, and these forms indemnify the Ministry against any um, mishaps that may occur in the line of duty. Mishaps? But isn't that what being an international man of mystery is all about? Okay, name. Austin Danger Powers. Sex? Yes, please. So final questions. If it was remade today, who would you cast? I've got a I've got two things. Okay, who do you have? I've got a young version and an old version of each role. Let's do it. Young Austin, I think it's Taryn Edgerton. I love we also brought him up for top secret, by the way. Yeah. I <laughs> so it makes he sense. does a really good job. He's he's got comedic timing, but he's also got a physicality there where it's like the dude could fight and like do spy stuff because it's like you see it in kingsman kingsman honestly is like it's awesome powers in an alternate universe is really like what i see that like, i think you can see the the potential there but also i think if you have to totally recast old austin uh it's ricky gervais <laughs> like i think ricky yeah. gervais would be a great like old perverted like, sex panther i think that that's 100 uh young vanessa kensington it's Mario robbie it's Margot Robbie, 100%. Yeah, I agree with you on that. That's Margot Robbie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's um, a good pick. Old Vanessa Kensington, I think Liz, Liz Hurley still got it, bro. Liz Hurley's back in it. <laughs> I, 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 don't, agree. I don't see I, agree. I don't see anyone else being able to to you achieve that. Like, I think she's got a she's still got it. Yeah. Um, Young Dr. Evil, obviously. Uh, we're going to go Taryn and Ricky again for Dr. Evil. One I'll throw out who I think could, could, could be a good Austin because I'm because those are all those are English actors, which is fine. Uh, because it's also an American playing English, I think is also funny. I wonder if Paul Rudd could be Austin Powers. Oh, I could see that, but it's more like his character from Anchorman. Yeah, I, I could see him being Austin Powers. I don't know if he can be Doctor Evil is the question, but I think he could be Austin Powers. Yeah, I agree. Also, what if I told you? What if I told you Mike Myers is Canadian? Would it blow your mind? That's true. He is Canadian. I, I forgot. No, you're right. He is Canadian. It's Paul Rudd. Paul Rudd's from Kansas City. Uh, I mean, Jim Jim Carrey. Jim Carrey's Canadian. Um, 
Uh, Ryan Reynolds is Canadian, but I don't see him playing Austin Powers. I, I thought about I thought I thought about Ryan Reynolds, but I feel like it would just, it, I, I don't know. I don't, again, I don't know if it could be Doctor Evil. Is the thing I think it could be. I think Same. it could be a, a, a Austin Powers. I think if you remade Goldmember now, Ryan Reynolds is the Tom Cruise version. I think that that's probably yes. I agree with you. I, agree I think that's that. probably who that is. Um, I agree completely. I uh, if I had to recast Scotty Evil, I think like uh, bleach blonde tips Timothy Chalamet would be perfect. <laughs> like painted nails, bleach blonde tips, spiked hair. I think it's Timothy Chalamet, and I think it'd be hilarious. I mean, it's Timothy Chalamet and don't look up, like in a way, a hundred percent, a hundred percent, like a little more emo or a little bit more punk rock. Uh, that's more yeah. more insecure about himself. That's probably that way to yeah. say that. Uh, yeah, I like all those. I like all the. I I, I kind of. Yeah, I, I, Paul Rudd's kind of the guy I'm thinking for Austin Powers. Terry actually wouldn't be bad. I'm just like, is it too similar to Kingsman? Is the thing that I think. I think this is a world where Kingsman does not exist. Okay. That that is my. He <laughs> in could all, obviously in not do both. Land. Yeah, an alternate universe where like this just Kingsman was Austin Powers. Like I think that's what I. I think if I had to recast, uh, Frau Farbizna. I think I'd probably go Helena Bottom Carter, maybe. Yeah, that's a good I pick. think she would be ter- terrifying and cold, but also hilarious. And who I would give Basil Exposition to, I'd give it to Hugh Grant, actually. I'd let Hugh Grant play Agreed. Basil Agreed. Exposition. Yeah, I completely agree. That. Underrated scene is when he punches Basil Exposition's mom in the face. That is one of the underrated <laughs> scenes in this movie. I wish I would have mentioned it earlier. Yeah, a lot of good scenes. A lot of good scenes. Um, does this film fit any other genres? I would throw it into the spy genre as well. It's a parody of it, but I think I would, I would throw it into a spy genre. I don't know if I throw it into anything else, but I think that would, I think it fits in that perfectly. Um, and I think that goes into the last question of how does this film fit with the parody genre in your eyes? In my eyes. I mean, it's something that you've, you know, talked about time and time again throughout this section of films. It takes a love for the subject matter to really make it a compelling and like, you know, memorable parody film. And I think it is so clear in this franchise and in this film alone, how much like true passion and love for bond films and for just British spy films in general came from Mike Myers to make this movie, to like make, to bring this to life. Um, yeah. It's like, it's the most clear and obvious connection uh, that you've mentioned time and time again and you know it really does speak it speaks to why this film lasts as much as it does and why it's managed to mm-hmm. become what it became yeah it feel there is a like i said there's a lovingness to the to the bond genre or bond series and because it feels personal it's why i guess it, it holds up in that way but yeah i think i think because it does that it captures that and then also takes the tropes of a bond film and then it's like, but what if this happens? Or like, let's let's take that serious scene from this movie, but let's like have him fart in the jacuzzi and then just see what happens there. Like just have yeah. that little extra uh, thing to make it a funny scene that you would see in another, uh, you'd do it in a very serious way if you wanted to. Um, because he they're, they are aware of the franchise and know the tropes of it, know the characters, the character uh, archetypes of it. They can play with it. I think that works well. I think so too. Completely agree. Is that it on Austin Powers, International Man of Mystery? For now, until we get a, I think so. until we get another <laughs> until we get one. the fourth one. Until we get that fourth one, which is coming. You know it's coming. It feels right around the corner. Uh, but that's all we have for you. Next week, it's our final episode of our parody month, and we we're talking about Mel Brooks, the king 
of spoofs, as they would say, but king of parody, um, a wide variety of genres from westerns to old universal horror films with Young Frankenstein to Star Wars movies with Spaceballs and Robin Hood movies with Robin Hood Men in Tights. So many different things. Um, so go check out his films if you can before next week. But that's all we have for you in this episode. If you're a fan of the show or a new listener, make sure you subscribe to the Nation Podcast so you can stay up to date on all of our new episodes. You can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast. And if you haven't already, make sure you rise from whatever platform you listen to the show on. These reviews kind of help us get more exposure with people who are listening to film podcast um and also just share it with friends tell your friends about tell your family about tell your your neighbor whatever play it loud so they can hear you next door i don't know uh, but just spread the word if you can it'll help us out tremendously and finally don't forget last and follow us on facebook twitter instagram tiktok all at jazz hunter thank you so much for joining me and writing this episode and researching austin powers so it's always a pleasure always a pleasure i this is the most prep i put into an episode yet i watched so much stuff for this movie and it showed, thank it, you very much it's been a pleasure being here um looking forward to the next time we get to do this again for sure and thank you all for listening we have to listen more episodes soon bye <laughs>